Right, well, we're looking at John chapter 2 this evening, and um, we're not going to look at the whole chapter, but I did want to read the whole chapter so that we understood um, sort of the, a little bit of the context of, of John's portion here. The verses I really want to look at are verses 23 to 25, the last few verses. Let me just read those. The discerner of hearts, which is what the subtitle is in my Bible. I don't know about yours. It's a great way to to describe these verses. The discerner of hearts. Now, when he was in Jerusalem, speaking of Christ, at the Passover, during the feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them because he knew all men. And had no need that anyone should testify of man, for he knew what was in man. So, John chapter 2. If you've ever read John's Gospel, you'll know that chapter 1, it is quite an explosive chapter, isn't it? I mean, you read chapter 1 and it immediately, if you read with any sort of um, humility and willingness to really know God, there is something about the first chapter of John that just grips you. It really rivets your attention upon um, what John is uh, wanting to communicate and to convey about Jesus Christ. And as I said, it's it's quite an explosive passage. Now after that, after this introduction, this great introduction to the life of Christ in chapter 1, what we have in chapter 2, verses 1 to 12, is the account of a, of an, of a, mir- a, a miracle that Christ performed in Cana of Galilee, where, as we read, he turns water into wine. And then in verse... Um, 1 through 11, you can sort of read this. He then, after explaining this miracle, he gives a a brief comment, John does, of his own thoughts on this miracle. We then find Christ, in verse 12 of chapter 1, traveling, and then he stays for a short time in Capernaum, he says. And after a short visit there, verses 13 to 18, um, he goes to Jerusalem, where we find Christ going into into the temple, and he cleanses it, um, and he, as we read there, he turns over the tables, and he makes this comment about, um, about the, the house of his father, and we read from the other Gospels some of this as well. But what we really have here is the, the king himself coming into his own temple, and he's driving out the money changers, and those who are using religion for... A prophet, really. Still happens today. It happened back then. It will continue to happen. He goes into the temple. He turns over the tables. And then at the, ver- at the end of sort of chapter, uh, verses 13 to 18, we have this comment that John writes about what really struck the, disi- the disciples about that particular event. You see there in verse 18 of of chapter 1 of John, he says, No one has seen God at any time. The only, sorry, of chapter 2, sorry, not chapter 1. He says, And he said to them, Draw some out now and take it to the master of the feast. Again, I'm reading verse 8, sorry. 
Verse 18, so the Jews answered and said to him, what sign do you show to us since you do these things? Jesus said to them, destroy this temple in three days, I will raise it up. The Jews said it took us 46 years. They don't understand what's happening here. They thought he was talking about the temple that was made with hands. He was talking about his own body. There was something Christ was teaching them about what he was going to accomplish. And there in verse 21, you'll notice that John makes this little comment, but he was speaking of the temple of his body. So again, you find this all throughout John's gospel. He tells something of Christ. He makes a brief comment. Maybe it's a comment that he himself wishes to convey to the reader. Sometimes it's something that the disciples thought or said concerning Christ that he wants the reader to also consider. It helps shed light onto what the point of everything that he writes, particularly about Christ, um, what he wants to say. So he does this. this. The disciples are str- struck by this event that he goes into the temple and what seems like to us, because we read it oftentimes just in a very surface way, he looks like he's, um, you know, he's really flying off the handle here. He's overreacting. He's not overreacting. I mean, the disciples, John says, they remember zeal, what the scriptures said about the Messiah, zeal for my father's house will consume me. They remember that suddenly. This happened after the resurrection, we see. And then in verse 23 to 25, that, all of this is happening in chapter 2. And that leads then to verse 23 to 25. And we have this short, of count, uh, short account of, it really functions as a kind of bridge between chapters 2 and chapters 3. So if you're reading John, when you get to verse 23, you're crossing a bridge from one chapter into another. And it's really that bridge that I want us to walk across this evening. And so in verses 23 to 25, John records some of the activity surrounding Jesus' time during the Passover feast in Jerusalem. And he mentions a few things that is important for us to notice. The first thing he wants us to notice is this, that Jesus was performing signs. He was performing miracles. He was doing something, something that was extraordinary, but was meant to be something that pointed beyond itself. The miracles were always intended by Christ to do just that, to point beyond itself to Him. The second thing that John wants us to notice is that His miracles that He performs, that were meant to point beyond themselves to Him, His miracles had such an effect, you'll notice, that there were many people, John says, who were being drawn to profess faith in Christ, to profess an allegiance to Jesus. That was the effect his his miracles were having. And he wants us to notice that it had that effect. People were being drawn to commit themselves to Jesus, to say that their allegiances lay with Him. But then the third thing that you'll notice here that John says he wants us to pay attention to, as it were, John writes that as for Jesus, he himself didn't commit or entrust himself to them. Now, what are some of the things that we can learn from all this? Well, the first thing I want you to notice, just in these three short passages, is that clearly there is a kind of faith or a faith of a sort in Jesus which does not save. 
It is not unusual for some people to be so affected by Christ and so affected by his message that they see something in Jesus that shines, as it were, And it's not unusual for some people to be so affected by that something which shines that for them, it it may even drive themselves, drive them to make a profession of faith and to say, my allegiance is with Him. It might even drive them a kind of faith that's affected by Christ that may even drive them to to embrace Christ in a way, in some kind of way, but not in a saving way. And it might even lead that person to partake in some sort of religious endeavor, even, with a religious motivation behind it. And yet, despite of all of this, that person may still remain spiritually unchanged and unconverted and lost and dead in their sins. And so the first thing we notice here, there is a kind of faith, a faith of some sort that is not saving and does not save a person. And you see this here in these verses. And of course that can be quite terrifying to consider, can't it? I mean, what leads a person to believe in Christ in such a way that still may leave them spiritually lost, spiritually dead? Surely there's not such a thing, we might say, but there is. The Bible is replete with these kind of truths. It's just the truths that we don't like to talk about. There is a kind of faith that doesn't save. Yes, there is. We get it in Hebrews, don't we? We must believe that He is and He is a rewarder of those who diligently seek Him. It's not just enough to believe that He is. We must believe that that He is a rewarder. He also gives to those who diligently seek Him. Earnestly seek Him. Well, What can lead, lead a person to believe in Christ in such a way that still leaves them lost and dead in sins. And they may not even know it. Well, one of the ways that this can occur is when the works of Christ are the chief things that draw a person to profess faith in Him. Let's just look at three examples. What about the work of creation? You oftentimes see this. You hear it maybe on the internet or through the telly. People droning on and on, and it is helpful to consider, and they are good things to consider, right things to consider to a point. But some, they just drone on and on about, oh, look at creation, look at how amazing that is. Isn't God great? Yes, He is. But my friends, I need something more than that. Yes, I know He's big, I know He's great, I know He can do these things, but is there more? And a person says, oh, isn't he so great? You know, he's so great. I'm going to give my life to him and that's it. And then they continue living life as they always had. But they feel significant now. They feel that they've done something. Maybe they've attributed something to God. They've given him a little something that he lacked. Maybe given him a little bit of some attention that he was missing. You know, this is how C.S. Lewis once thought of God before he went... He converted to Christianity. 
He was an atheist before. Remember C.S. Lewis. He said, before I became a Christian, I thought God sounded like an old maid. That's what he said. An old maid. Begging for attention. He read the Psalms. And he said, as I read the Psalms, he was always saying to people, look to me, come to me, see me. And he said, it reminded me of an old maid who never got any attention. But then he said, it suddenly... I was struck and surprised by joy, he said. That was the greatest thing God could have ever done. To say to lost people like us, look at me, find all your pleasure in me. I will fulfill all that you desire. It's me that you want. It was the kindest thing God could have done. We can't talk that way. We don't have enough in us to offer to others, to provide that eternal joy that is only in Christ. We don't have it, but he does. And so C.S. Lewis was struck by this. But, but, it wasn't the God of creation, it wasn't the work of creation that drew C.S. Lewis to Christ. It wasn't the work of redemption even. Do you know, one of the ways that a person can still be lost in their sin and yet profess, profess a faith of a sort is that the chief thing that really consumes them, all right, this is very tricky, get ready to throw stones, the work of redemption even. Well, that's controversial, isn't it? What do you mean the work of redemption? Surely, if anything, the work of redemption ought to be the chief thing that draws a person to profess, profess faith in Christ. Well, my friends, it's not. You can be, look at the work of redemption and you can be amazed by it. You can be struck by it. You can open up your Bible and lose yourself trying to explore all the various threads and avenues of the, this redemption, this work of redemption by Christ. And if that's the chief thing that draws a person to Christ, it's not enough, my friends. But what about this? It gets worse. Get ready. The work of regeneration. What about that? Surely, surely that you can't say that, preacher. Is the chief thing that drew you to Christ to profess faith in Him and to, and to profess an allegiance to Christ? Was it the work of regeneration? There's the work of creation, the work of redemption, the work of regeneration, the Spirit's work inside. It is an amazing thing. Do not get me wrong here. It is an extraordinary thing that is oftentimes neglected in the church, talked about and preached upon. The work of the Spirit in the soul of man, how he takes the dead carcass of a heart and he gives it life and he breathes into it. Isn't it amazing to even talk about and to hear about and to think about? It is. But is that the chief thing that draws a person to profess faith in Christ? You can believe and be amazed at all of those things, the work of creation and redemption and regeneration. You can be amazed by all of that and yet still be lost. Why? Because the chief thing that draws someone into a saving faith in Christ is His person. Himself. It is He Himself of which those things ought to lead you to. It is He Himself that draws a person into a real saving faith. You can look at all of these works of Christ and still walk away without any real sense of the misery of sin. Did you know that? 
You can look at the work of creation and be amazed. You can look at the work of redemption and be amazed. You can look at the work of regeneration and you can be struck with wonder and yet never walk away sensing anything of your sin. And no real sense of Christ's mercy exercised towards you. In other words, think of it this way. It's like going to an antique shop and you walk in and you see the display case and you look at the display case and there's the work of creation and redemption and regeneration and you look at that. Aren't they wonderful? And we turn to those beside. Look at this. Isn't this great? Yes, we say. Yes, yes. And someone attempts to reach you. No, you can't touch. You're not allowed to touch these things. I've seen more churches today that look more like museums rather than what they ought to look like. Difficult, but real nurseries, I say. Nurseries. Where there are things, maybe even a a, a family living room might be a better illustration. Where you're allowed to walk in and you see all these glorious realities and you can go up to them and you can pick them up. And you can handle them. And you can take them to your Father who sits in the room and you can say to Him, Oh, Father, what does this mean? What does this tell me about You? What what does creation say about You? What does redemption say about You? What does regeneration say about You? Oh, God, stir my affections for You. And He will sit us down, as it were, on His lap and we can sit there and listen to His voice as He speaks to us by His Spirit. But oh, the joy when the sun walks into the room, isn't it? When we consider these things and are able to handle them and live upon them. So many churches today, they treat these things as untouchable. You can't touch that. We've got them in our nice categories. Leave them there. Don't try to mess with it. These things were intended, as we said this morning, to transform us. We're allowed to handle these things. We must handle them carefully, yes. Never forget that. We must not be careless with these truths. But there is a way, there is a faith of a sort, which can still leave a person lost in their sins. And you can be amazed by all those works of God. And yet never really be drawn to God Himself in His person, Christ Himself in His person. What is required? Well, what is required is direct contact with a living Christ. All of these things simply lead us and help us in that. Well, the second thing I want you to notice is, in these three verses, there is a such thing we notice here There is a such thing as a spiritual mob mentality, isn't there? Did you notice that? When he was in Jerusalem at the Passover during the feast, many believed in his name. Many believed in his name. You see that. A faith of a sort. When they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. A few did not believe in his name. Many. Many believed in his name. There is a, a kind of a spiritual mob mentality that can, that, that, that can occur. I mean, think of it this way. All you have to do, all Christ had to do, 
was to, to show something of his power and his glory, and people flocked to see what it was all about. That's because mankind, we're addicted to power. We're addicted to glory, aren't we? I mean, this is what caused Adam to fall in the garden, wasn't it? He saw something as he walked in the presence, unadulterated, sinless relationship with the Creator. And he knew something, something, uh, sorry, not of Adam, of, of the devil. He saw something of the power as he was there as an angel of light before the presence of God. He saw something of the power. He saw something of his glory. And he yearned for it. He wanted a little for himself. I mean, that's what mankind is like. And all Christ has to do is show something of his power, something of his glory. People, people will be interested. People will flock. Do you remember the great words of John Wesley? It's reported. Don't know how accurate it is, but if it's not true, it sure should be true. One account goes that a young man came to Wesley, many people being drawn by the thousands to hear his preaching, as was common with many of these young men in the revival. And they said to John Wesley, how do you explain this? How do you explain the effect that all these people come to the middle of nowhere to hear you? And he said, my friend, a, a man, let a man catch on fire for Christ. People will come from miles around to watch him burn. You see, because people are addicted to power in one sense, in some sense. That's what we were made for, isn't it? We were made in His image. We were meant to be drawn to something great, something big, something magnificent, something more than this. But there is a such thing as a spiritual mob mentality. Mankind is obsessed with power and glory, and if we can see that there may be something in it for us, I mean, we're sold immediately, aren't we? We're sold. Something in it for me. I can get something out of it. But, my friends, you let Christ begin to show something of the suffering and the heartache involved in following Him, and you begin to see men and women falling off by the scores, left and right, leaving people begin to forsake him as soon as the cross is in view and there's suffering involved and there's agony involved and there's heartache involved and yet you're still committed to following him those who aren't really his they can't do it it's too costly but Christ knows the heart doesn't he we hear in these verses. He knows what's in man. And listen to what John says. But Jesus did not commit himself to them. Many believed in his name when they saw the signs which he did. But Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Do you, do you see? Do we understand this? The most significant question is not, have you committed yourself to Jesus? But the real important question is, has he committed himself to you? Are you the kind of person he delights to entrust himself to? We look at people who are prosperous often, don't we? And we say, oh, they must be blessed by God. 
Look how nice they have it. But my friends, God, God is, he's not really concerned with money. He owns the cattle on a thousand hills. He's not concerned with prosperity, not, not material prosperity, is he? That's not what his primary concern is. A person isn't really blessed just because they have some stuff. No, the things that God delights in, truly his heart delights in, he doesn't just give to anyone. No, 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 he's very precious with these things. And he entrusts these things to them, to those whom he delights to entrust them. That's the real question, isn't it? How many sermons have we heard? Have you committed yourself to Jesus? When the real question was, no, no, has he committed himself to you? In, again, you'll probably know by now that I'm a bit of a fan of Welsh history. There's a reason I live there. And uh, as an American, I suppose we can have a bit of a rose-tinted view of, of Wales, particularly you know, when we think that it's in England, um, <laughs> the city in England. But um, as a young man, I was often, um, I came from a, quite a religious background, and um, I was actually preaching before I was ever really converted, before I really rested in Jesus. And this was a unique, I never knew anyone like this. I didn't know that was possible. I thought I was a bit of a weirdo, really. Um, I thought at times maybe I'm like, schizophrenic, maybe I'm, I'm, there's a lot of these swirling thoughts in my head, they just didn't make sense. And then I was introduced to these historical Welsh men um, in particular, not that there weren't others, there were others obviously, um, but I had a real natural affinity for some reason um, to these men, because when I began to read them, I realized here were men as well, who were ministering, and they grew up in religion, they thought they were okay with God, but they didn't know him. And then and even in the midst, some of them, of their own preaching, they were converted. How extraordinary. Suddenly, I didn't feel like such a freak anymore. Such a, such a mentalist. You know, there were other people who had experienced this. Well, one of these men who were wonderfully affected was a man by the name of Hal Harris, with, which some of you may have known. And there's this account of him leading a meeting where various leaders of the movement in the 1700s were gathered together and they were trying to iron out some sort of issue that was occurring and they couldn't really get their finger on why they could not come to some sort of agreement. There was something underneath the surface, something underneath that seemed to not be able to allow them to come to some sort of peaceful terms. And Hal Harris is leading this meeting. And on and on they go for hours and hours and hours. Now, Hal Harris suddenly picks up on this one particular man who seemed to be a constant voice in this meeting. And he decided that he was going to try to begin sort of aiming his comments towards him. And eventually what occurs is that this man, uh, he, he comes out of his seats and he says, no, no, and he spouts off. I mean, he gets, he gets to boiling point and he spouts off and he says things and Hal Harris sees it and he slams his hand on the table and he says, there's the wolf. There's the wolf. 
This man, struck by the reality of what Hal Harris was saying, he understood what Hal Harris was saying, and there and then, he repented. And suddenly they came to an agreement, all of them. You see, they didn't know what was in the heart of man. It took them a while, didn't it? They were there for hours trying to iron out these issues. And until the wolf was discovered, there was no peace. And it's the same thing with the individual soul. There may be a wolf lurking inside your own soul. You don't even know it. But then the light of the gospel comes in. The light of God's word shines. And there it is in all of its dirtiness and filth. But wonderfully, the Lord brings us to this place by his kindness, doesn't he? Leads us to repentance. That man was converted in that meeting. Christ knew that all along. He knows what's in the heart of man. This is the significant question. Has he entrusted himself to you? You see, the problem with this sort of spiritual mob mentality is that it is possible to hide in a crowd, isn't it? A lot of people hide in church, even on Sunday morning. They come, they show up, they sit, and they're just one of many faces. And even here tonight, one of many faces you may think of yourself. And to me, that's really, in one sense, kind of what you are. There's a lot of history here, a lot of lives here that I could not even begin to listen to. You could be describing to me all of the ins and outs of your lives and we wouldn't have enough time. But my friends, God knows it all. You, don't, you can't hide from God in this room. And I hope you're not hiding from God. And if you are, come out into the light. Why are you hiding? Let His light shine. Admit it. I'm a fraud. I'm a liar. I'm a thief. I have stolen, not from the shop, I have stolen from God's glory. I've tried to take something that was not mine to myself. I've kept back my heart, maybe. It's not your heart. It's His. It is possible to hide in the crowd. And there is a such thing as a spiritual mob mentality. We might say a religious mob mentality that gathers together with other religious people. But really you're hiding. But Christ, he sees past the crowds. He sees past the group. And he knows the heart of every individual. His eyes, John says in Revelation, are a flame of fire. And penetrates. Those eyes of his, they search deep. They go deep down into the crevices of our souls where we don't want anyone to look. I mean, this is how we are often, isn't it? Where you have someone, I, I may have had this experience this afternoon even. You have a guest, right? You're going to regret having me over to your house now. This wasn't on the list of things I wasn't allowed to say. You might have a guest. They come over, you need to clean the room up. And there's that one room, isn't there, that everything goes into. And we put it all in that one room. And we close the door and hope that they never see. Sometimes it's the back room, maybe the utility room. But they're not allowed to see that room. Now we can be like that with God. There's a lot of rooms in our lives. But there may be one room where you've sort of put all the clutter and you've shut the door. And you've said to yourself, Lord, don't go in that room. Don't open the door. 
But my friend, that is exactly what we need. He knows the heart of all of us. He needs to penetrate into your life. I mean, it's possible even with Christians. We can still, we have this propensity to do this, even as Christians. We know something of God's kindness and, and His countenance tor- turns turn towards us, something of His smiling face in our lives, and we experience what we call spiritual mountain peaks, spiritual heights, and they're wonderful. And then we become careless. We take it for granted. We allow a little bit of something to creep in that ought not be there. Little by little, it accumulates over time, doesn't it? And we think to ourselves, oh, if he, came, if he came right now, how ashamed I would be. And we take these things and we may try to open up that cupboard and stuff them in and close it. But there's no need, believer. There's no need. Open it. Open the door. Let him come in. Let him sort you out. Let him sort anything he wants. Proverbs 5, for the ways of man are before the eyes of the Lord, and he watches all his paths. He knows it all. There's no need to hide. Well, as we close, let me just again ask a couple of questions. How some of these things might apply particularly to us. How might these things help us as professing believers here tonight? I mean, I know, I do understand Some of these things are quite startling realities that it is possible to have a faith of a sort that doesn't save. That's quite a terrifying prospect, isn't it? The fact that there can be such a thing as a spiritual mob mentality where you show up to church Sunday after Sunday, but really you're just hiding in the crowd. Maybe you're pleasing your parents or your spouse so that you can get them off your back for the next week. But how might these things help us as professing believers here tonight? Well, Think of it this way. Because Christ knows what is in the heart of man, as we see here, He knows. He doesn't need anyone to tell Him what's in the heart of man. He knows it. It says in verse 25, because He knows what is in man's heart, it should lead us to take care, to live in the daily awareness that He knows me. He knows me. And I determine, God, day after day, I am determined to wake up and drag my soul, even as it were, if need be, drag my soul before you to live in the awareness that you know me. You know me. Listen to Job chapter 11. For he knows false men, and he sees iniquity without investigating. You see, just ask the elders. An issue, the elders, some issue pops up. Is it true? Is it not true? Maybe you've had some of these happen before in the history of this church. I don't know. An issue happens. Something comes to the attention of the elders. And then suddenly what happens? Oh, let's get together, right? Okay, let's, let's sit down. Let's think about this. We need to investigate. Is it true? Is it not true? If it is true, what do we need to do about it? If it's not true, how do we need to respond? Let's begin an investigation, we might say. But not God, you see. Job is quite clear. He sees iniquity. He sees sin. And he doesn't even have to investigate it. Jeremiah chapter 17, he says, I, the Lord, search the heart. I test the mind, even to give to each man according to his ways, 
according to the results of his deeds. He's the one who searches the heart. There is no hiding from him. Well, the last way that these things might help a professing believer here tonight is that not only should this lead us to this daily, to take care to wake up and daily bring ourselves under the awareness that he knows me, but also it should lead us in the right kind of self-examination. Because you know there's a wrong kind, don't you? We all know it, the navel staring, where we just kind of look down into ourselves, but we never, never really look up again from that. And we end up despairing and depressed. I don't want that to be the end game here. No, it it should lead us, these verses should lead us to a self-examination. That's the right kind of self-examination. Where am I, God? I want to come before you and honestly say to you, Lord, where am I? Am I where I need to be? You know where I am, God. You know me better than I know myself. Let me be honest with myself, we might say. Let me be honest with God. Let me come before Him. I'm not going to hide anymore. Now let me ask you, what is it? What is it, we might say to ourselves, that drew me to Christ, really? What is it that continues to draw me to Christ? Is it His works? Maybe creation? Redemption, regeneration, as wonderful as they are, is that what keeps you coming back to Him day after day after day? Or is it His person? Is it the person of Christ that draws you to Him continually? Oh, my soul says, He is the chief among ten thousands. That's the language of the Bible. Oh, He is the Alpha. He is the Omega. He is the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He is the great I Am, He says. He's the door of life. He is the entryway. And He's also the continual way in and up. It is Christ Himself who is the great attraction to Christianity. Not any particular individual here. Not any particular preacher. Nothing like that, no. You, the psalmist says about Christ, you are fairer than the sons of men. Grace, he says, is poured upon your lips. Therefore, God has blessed you forever. Oh, the psalmist goes on to say in Psalm 72, may his name endure forever. May his name increase. His name, his character, not just what he's done for you, but who he is in himself is the jewel of Christianity. May his name increase as long as the sun shines and let men bless themselves by him. Let all nations call him blessed. Blessed be the Lord God, the God of Israel, who alone works wonders, creation, redemption, regeneration. But it is he alone that works those wonders. And blessed be his glorious name forever. And may, the psalmist says, may the whole earth be filled with his glory. Amen, he says. And amen again, he says. May we be a people enamored with Jesus Christ. And may he be the chief thing that draws you to him. Morning by morning, Isaiah 50, he awakens me. 
to listen as a follower. And he gives us a tongue, Isaiah says, of a disciple, that we may sustain the weary one with a word. That, that, that is the pattern of discipleship. To wake up day after day to listen. And he gives us the words to help those around us to sustain their weary souls. And is there not numerous weary souls around us? I mean, since I, I've only been here seven years, it's not been long, I know. But in the seven years that I've been here, this point in time since I've been here seems to me to be the weariest time in Britain since I've been here. There's a lot going on, isn't there? Brexit and politics and terrorism and all these things occurring, very real issues. It's a weary time. And there are weary souls around us. We wake up. We come into the awareness of God again afresh. We examine ourselves and we walk with him and he gives us the tongue of a disciple and we're able to sustain the weary one with a word. Well, let's pray. Father, Father, we turn our hearts and ask, oh God, teach us what it means. That cross uplifted high with one, the man of sorrows, condemned to bleed and die. Lord, we know that there are many, many who crowd the Savior's kingdom. But oh, how few embrace His cross. Few who will suffer loss. Oh God, how quick men and women are to come to Christ when He, promised to give, when he promises to give so much. But then when the cost comes, how few follow Christ. But not us, O oh Lord, we pray. Help us, God, to follow you no matter the cost. In Christ's name, amen.